welcome to a special episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bob Thune, pastor of Cormdale Church, and I am flying solo this week. Pastor Dusty is on vacation, Chris Hellman is on vacation, Bethany Gilbert is on vacation. All that means is it's summertime, and lots of people are doing summertime things. So here I am, listeners, sitting alone in the podcast studio, and on this episode of the Wednesday Conversation, I want to provide a special Wednesday conversation commentary on the limits of liberalism. I want to bring you into a political theology conversation I've been thinking a lot about lately, and that I think actually many of us are thinking a lot about, though we don't have the right language to name it. So recently, I did a training for our church on political theology, and even more recently, I wrote a piece for Mere Orthodoxy on the limits of liberalism. And so I want to think with you about political theology and how the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ shapes and should shape how we think about our position and place in society. I want to think about the gifts, the goods, and the limits of political liberalism. Now, here's my first concern. When you hear me say political liberalism, I know what you're thinking, and that's not what I mean. When most American listeners hear the word liberal, they think in terms of left and right on the political spectrum. So a liberal would be someone who's more left on the political spectrum. A conservative would be someone who's more right on the political spectrum in America. And so when we hear liberal, we tend to think a leftist. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm reflecting on is actually the entire political tradition that has shaped Western democracy, and especially the United States of America. Let me read you the first two sentences from my piece at Mere Orthodoxy, titled, David Brooks and the Limits of Liberalism. Here's what I write. Freedom, liberty, rights, democracy. These are the stock terms of our American political lexicon, and they come to us from the tradition known as liberalism. Whether right, center, or left, we are all liberals in our political philosophy. That's the main point I want to drive home to you. When I talk about political liberalism, I'm talking about our common heritage as Americans. Whether right, center, or left on the political spectrum, All of us are liberals. In fact, Alistair McIntyre says it this way, most modern political discourse is an argument between conservative liberals, liberal liberals, and radical liberals. Likewise, David Coises, a Christian political scientist, admits that in the English-speaking world, all of us can be said to be liberals in some sense. We are the heirs of a tradition known as liberalism, and that tradition goes back to thinkers like John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Stuart Mill. Political philosophers writing mostly in the 17th and 18th centuries who shaped how we think about politics and society. So let me dial back the clock and just give a little history lesson to remind you how we got to where we are. It used to be, if you grew up somewhere in the world, There was an official religion of the state or country or region that you lived in. If you think all the way back to the Reformation and what happened in Germany under Martin Luther, you had some regions that were Catholic 
in other regions that were officially Protestant. And that's how we got the wars of religion. If you think about how the Anglican church came to be as the King of England objected to the authority of the Pope and decided to be the head of his own church, the Anglican church, this is what was normal in European society and really all around the world was that wherever you lived in the world, there was an official religion that was sanctioned by the people. And that was essentially an extension of the state. What these political thinkers began to wrestle with was the freedom and rights of individual citizens. They began to realize, based inherently on Christian presuppositions, they began to realize that each individual has a right to freedom, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of conviction, and that if we are really going to live in a world with maximal freedom, if we're going to create a society where individuals are maximally free, the way to do that is to prioritize the rights and freedoms of individuals over the coercion of the state. This is then how we got to what we consider modern democracy, where the starting point is the individual freedoms and rights that each individual has and where the state exists mainly to preserve the rights and freedoms of individual citizens. This was revolutionary when these philosophers began first to write about it, but now it's just what we take for granted in Western societies. We all understand that we want to live in a world where we have individual rights and freedoms and where no one can tell us what religion we have to believe, what church we need to attend, or what things we ought to hold as true and good and foundational. We believe deeply in individual freedom, and this is really the heritage of political liberalism. Now, while there are goods in liberalism, and while I believe those goods all are the heritage of the Christian worldview in the first place, what we're seeing in the modern world are the limitations of unfettered liberalism. Think about this with me. In fact, let me read you David Coises's assertion about liberalism. He writes, liberalism stands or falls on its foundational belief in the sovereignty of the individual. The liberal story begins with human autonomy, which goes well beyond a mere attachment to personal freedom. Autonomy means to be self-directed, to govern oneself in accordance with a law one has chosen for oneself. Liberalism is not just about personal freedom. It's about autonomy, about the freedom to govern oneself, to live life in the way that you want to live it. That's the common denominator that unites all strands of liberalism. Here's what's interesting about that foundational conviction. If it is true that liberalism stands or falls on the sovereignty of the individual, here's the question we eventually get to. In a society full of sovereign individuals who are all free to pursue their own vision of life, how do we arrive at any common consensus? How do we agree together on what things we as a society, are going to hold foundational and true and good. In other words, what's the common good that unites us? 
what I assert in my piece at Mere Orthodoxy, and I'm, I'm taking issue with David Brooks, a New York Times columnist who wrote a piece in The Atlantic in June of 2023, making a certain argument about liberalism and how we move forward in its philosophy. What I'm arguing in my piece, challenging David Brooks, is that liberalism leaves us with no common good. That actually, if we accept the starting point, that individual autonomy and freedom is the highest good, where that will eventually get us is where each and every individual is only out to secure their rights and freedoms against every other individual. And therefore, we have no common shared values, traditions, and institutions with which to center a society. Here's the way I say it at mere orthodoxy. Liberalism can only liberate. It cannot build. Liberalism is a naturally progressive ideology. As soon as it liberates individuals from one set of constraints, it immediately begins searching for the next. As a society, we have long moved beyond the common sense liberalism that would make Brooks's prescription viable. We are now liberating ourselves from our physical bodies. There's no turning back the clock to an earlier, less corrosive version of liberalism. As Yoram Hazoni observes, Enlightenment liberalism as a political ideology is bereft of any interest in conserving anything. It is devoted entirely to freedom, and in particular to freedom from the past. Freedom is what we wanted, and the freedom to die by lethal injection is what we've got. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. I'm referencing here Canada's medical assistance in dying law, which is what Brooks's article is built around. He's assessing that law and asking the question, how do we get back to a more humane version of liberalism that doesn't lead to, let's just all give ourselves the freedom to end our lives if we so choose. And David Brooks is suggesting there's a way for us to recover a version of classical liberalism that doesn't lead us down that path. I disagree with David Brooks. I don't think it's possible for us to turn back the clock to an earlier and more humane version of liberalism. And here's why. Because if the highest good in a society is individual freedom and autonomy, and what we want is maximal individual freedom and autonomy, then as I say it, the freedom to die by lethal injection is what we end up with. If we agree together that individual freedom and autonomy is the highest good in society, the thing a society should be built around, then who are you to tell me that I should not be free to end my own life, to change my gender, to go through radical transformative surgery, to change my bodily appearance? These are all rights now in our society that are rooted in the vision of human autonomy and personal freedom that liberalism first gave us. Here's the argument I'm making in my mere orthodoxy piece. I'm arguing that the early liberals, John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Stuart Mill and 
these various thinkers. I'm arguing that all of them could argue for individual rights and individual personal freedom because they were standing on a foundation given to them by Christianity. Where did the early liberals get the idea that individual rights and freedoms are important? Where did they get the notion of individual liberty, the freedom of the individual conscience? They got these ideas from the Bible. Christianity gave Western culture the notion of the rights of the individual in the first place. So the original liberal thinkers assumed the common good of Christianity in order to assert the rights of the individual. And as I said before, it really is true that individuals, as those made in the image of God, have rights and dignity and freedoms. It is, in fact, true that we should live in a maximally free society, that we should prioritize and value each individual's freedom of conscience, that we should not coerce or compel anyone to worship the way we worship or to believe the way we believe. I really do believe that individual freedom is an important foundational piece of a healthy society. But that belief was based on and rooted in Christianity. Now, what some liberal thinkers did was they captured that idea of individual rights and freedom. But what we did as a society was we removed Christianity as the foundational assumption underneath it. Here's how I say it in my piece at Mere Orthodoxy. The original liberal thinkers assumed the common good of Christianity in order to assert the rights of the individual. But over time, Thomas Hobbes's statement has come to fruition. The common good is no more. Liberalism has set us on a course of unfettered individualism, where, in Justice Kennedy's famous words, each person is free to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe. Because of this, modern liberalism has no way of creating or preserving shared values, institutions, and traditions over time. And that makes gifts-based liberalism an ideal that doesn't, that can't exist in reality. It's an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. That phrase, gifts-based liberalism, is David Brooks's way of describing the more humane version of liberalism he's trying to recapture. And I'm suggesting that version doesn't exist. And the reason is because liberalism has set us on a course of unfettered individualism, where now we have each individual free to define their own concept of existence, their own idea of meaning, their own concept of the universe. There's no way in a society that believes that that's what every individual should be free to do to sustain any kind of common good. Now, I mentioned in that quote, a quote or a statement from Thomas Hobbes. Here's what Thomas Hobbes wrote in 1651. There is no such finis ultimus, utmost aim, nor sumum bonum, greatest good, as is spoken of in the books of the old moral philosophers. See, the history of moral philosophy going all the way back to Aristotle had held that human beings have a highest good, that there's something a human being is made to do. The classic way of describing this in classical 
philosophy is to say a good hammer, like what is a good hammer? You can only answer that question by knowing what a hammer is for. A good hammer is a hammer that effectively drives a nail. You can't say, you can't answer, is this a good hammer without knowing the purpose of what the hammer is for. A good hammer is not made to make an omelet and it's not made to do calculus. It's made to drive nails. Similarly, every kind of thing has an ultimate end, something it's made for, and that includes human beings. There is an end for which human beings are made. As Christians, of course, we believe the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But even the classical philosophers who were not Christians believed there was an end for human beings. There's things we are made to do and made to become. And the end of human existence is to live a virtuous life. That's what Aristotle would have said. That's what the classical philosophers would have said. And you can see how the Christian understanding of our highest end just believes that to attain that virtuous life, we must be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. So all the classical world would have believed that human beings have some end, some purpose, some reason for existing. What Thomas Hobbes is saying in this famous quote is that there is no utmost end. There is no telos. There is no ultimate good for human beings. And if there is no ultimate good, then the question is, well, what can we agree on? What can be our shared vision of the good to anchor and ground a society? What liberalism proposed was, let's make the ultimate good of human beings pursuing individual freedom, or as our, as our declaration says it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's make that the thing we all agree is the highest good, that every individual in a society should be maximally free to pursue their vision of what will make them happy. And friends, if that's what we agree on as the common good, there's no way we can say that medical assistance in dying should not exist. Because after all, if an individual wants to be free to choose that, why should they not be? What I'm arguing is that where we've ended up now in our society with things like transgender ideology and with things like medical assistance in dying is just the natural destination of a worldview that believes individual autonomy and freedom is the only good. If that's where we start, then this is where we end up. David Brooks, in his Atlantic article, is advocating for something he calls gifts-based liberalism. Something rooted not in autonomy, but in the idea that we have been given a life and that we have obligations and responsibilities and duties to one another. To that, I want to say as a Christian pastor, yes and amen. Absolutely, as Christians, we recognize the language of gift, the language of grace, the idea that life and the world are gifts of God that we should be grateful for. But where I take issue with David Brooks is that we can only get to that understanding of life by starting from Judeo-Christian presuppositions. There's no way that liberalism conceived apart from the existence of God gets us to a vision of life where we believe that life is a gift and that we should be responsible and fulfill our obligations to one another and to society. 
that kind of common good, that kind of agreed upon end only exists as a heritage of Christianity. And that's what David Brooks fails to recognize in his Atlantic article. And that's why I'm writing this piece at Mere Orthodoxy, taking issue with what Brooks is saying. My contention is that modern liberalism, unhooked and disconnected from any sort of Christian vision of life, can't get us to a place where we agree on a common good. And so we end up, in the famous words of Thomas Hobbes, with the war of all against all. Here's how I end my article. The classical and Christian tradition created the conditions for liberalism to arise in the first place. Now the child has grown up and killed its mother. It is the classical and Christian tradition, not its liberal offshoot, which believes in the givenness of things. When David Brooks uses the language of gifts-based liberalism, he's borrowing from the lexicon of Christianity. It is true, in fact, that life is a gift, that each individual human being has inherent dignity, and that freedom is a wonderful thing that should be used in the service of others. But by severing these insights from the Christian tradition on which they are built, liberalism has liberated us from the very constraints necessary to a healthy, stable, and thriving society. We won't achieve a healthier society by recycling liberal first principles. We'll only achieve a healthier society by retrieving and renewing some vision of the common good. That's one thing liberalism can't give us. And that's why David Brooks and the rest of us should stop trying to reboot liberalism. It is my contention, contra David Brooks, that there is no version of liberalism that can provide for us a common good, at least no version of liberalism built on secular foundations, but rather that what he refers to as gifts-based liberalism is only possible if we believe in the possibility of gift, of life as being a gift from a giver. And it is only a religious point of view that would cause us to think that way. Now, when I taught on political theology for our church a few weeks ago, I suggested to them that instead of using the language of rights, Christians need to learn to speak in terms of the good. Let me end this podcast then by drawing a few suggestions from that teaching. I suggested that liberalism trains us to ask, what does a human being have the right to do? If you think about all of our ethical debates in society, they all revolve around rights. What is my right? What do I have a right to do? What do I not have a right to do? All of our language is rights language. However, that merely gives us a minimal version of ethics. Christianity, on the other hand, trains us to ask, what is good for human beings to do. That is a thicker and more maximal version of ethics that values the good of society over the good of any one individual. Instead of asking, what do I have a right to do? What does a human being have the right to do? We should be asking the question, what is good for human beings to do? That implies that there is a good 
for human beings, that there is some end, some telos for which we exist, and that certain things are in keeping with that end, and other things are not in keeping with that end. Now, obviously, we believe a human being's greatest good is found in communion with God through Jesus Christ. But that is not something we can force upon any person. The liberals were right when they argued that religion should not be coerced or compelled by anyone. The individual conscience must be free to choose to worship God and submit itself to Jesus Christ or not. And therefore, we must learn to think in terms of common grace versus special grace or creational good versus redemptive good. Of course, the highest good for our neighbors would be that they come to worship Jesus Christ with us. But short of that, there is also creational good which they are made for and which we ought to fight for on their behalf. This, in my opinion, is what it means for Christians and why Christians should fight against transgender ideology. Laws that allow minor children, for instance, to pursue gender transition are working against the creational good of being embodied human beings. It is simply foundationally and factually good for humans to inhabit the bodies they are given at creation rather than seeking to modify or change those bodies. And so therefore, even if someone does not share our faith in Jesus Christ, even if they do not share our Christian convictions, we still believe it is a good for them not to mutilate and destroy their bodies. So it is a creational kind of good that we can argue for when we fight against these kinds of laws and practices in society. We're not starting from a Christian foundation of you need to believe in Jesus Christ and worship him. We're starting from a creational foundation. We believe there is a good for human beings. And that good does not include radically altering the body they're given. We believe in the givenness of things. We believe that the body embodiment is a gift. That's a basic creational good. So I'm suggesting that as Christians, we need to learn to love the good and speak in terms of human goods rather than merely speaking in terms of rights. And of course, promoting the good, having a vision of the good, will require both positive and negative stances. Not everybody is going to agree that our vision of the good is in fact good. We should not expect that everyone will agree with that, but that should not change the fact that we should be able to argue for the good and from the good, standing on a creational foundation. So, the limits of liberalism are simply this. Liberalism can't get us to a vision of the common good. Liberalism can't get us to a vision of life as gift, life as grace, life as something we ought to preserve and pass on to others. And that's my argument with David Brooks in the piece I wrote at Mere Orthodoxy. For you, as a Christian listener, I want to encourage you to think about both the good and the limits of liberalism. I think one of our weaknesses in American society is that we tend to assume that the language of rights is the right language, and then we just start having arguments over which rights we should have or not have, instead of learning to ask how the Bible, how the Christian worldview, critiques 
our whole thinking about what it means to be free, what it means to have rights, not just what are we free from, but what are we free for. So I think learning to think more deeply about the good of liberalism and the limits of liberalism is essential to all of our current conversations about what is good for society and what trajectory ought we to be on as people living in a late modern Western democracy. I hope then that this podcast helps you think about these things a little more deeply. In the podcast notes, I will link both David Brooks's article at The Atlantic and my piece at Mere Orthodoxy that takes issue with some of his arguments. I hope you'll find them insightful and helpful as you seek to apply the gospel in everyday life and to live as faithful Christians in the world God has given us to live in. As we always say, the goal of the Wednesday conversation is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. This is primarily a podcast we do for the people of our churches, but we love that there are many of you who listen in from all over the world. And so as you listen in, we pray that the things we're talking about here might be helpful to you as you minister in your own context. Questions about liberalism and about the future of a rights-based democracy are not going away. And so if you have thoughts or questions or future podcast topics related to this, I hope you'll send us an email, podcast at cbomaha.com. We'd love to hear from you and love to find out what angles on this would you like us to pursue in episodes to come. Until then, thank you for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.